You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and I have two very special guests today. I have Bonnie Rice, who's a senior representative from the Sierra Club, Our Wild America campaign. Hey, Bonnie, how you doing? I'm well, Chris, how are you? Doing amazing, doing amazing. And then we have a special guest, Rain Bear Stands Last. He's the executive director of the Global Indigenous Council. Hey, Rain, how you doing? Doing good, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for both for being here. It's, you know, with my move to New Zealand, we've we've been rescheduling this interview, but we've really been wanting to have you on because briefly what we're going to talk about today is gray wolves. This has been a topic that has popped up a lot for us the last three years. These animals are losing protections right and left. And so recently the Trump administration had, had stripped protections from gray wolves. So we're going to go into that and kind of talk about what the implications are and where we are in this fight. So Bonnie, if you can go first and just kind of introduce yourself and, you know, a little bit on your background. Sure. Thank you. Um, I am with our Wild Wild America campaign. So that's a national campaign uh, for the Sierra Club. And if folks aren't familiar, Sierra Club's a national organization, and our mission is really to explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. And um, with that, to practice and promote responsible use of the Earth's ecosystems and resources, to educate and enlist humanity, to protect and restore the quality of the natural and human environment, and to use all lawful means to carry out those objectives. Great, great. And then Rain, can you just kind of talk about what you, your background and what you do? Um, I was just introducing myself in their two languages, traditional languages there. And I am presently the executive director of the Global Indigenous Council, which is an international advocacy organization for indigenous peoples and indigenous um, nations across the globe. And in addition to that, 
recently I had the honor to serve on President-elect Biden's uh, policy team, uh, specifically for indigenous policy. And I believe the president-elect and uh, the vice president-elect are going to have the most progressive indigenous policy of any administration in American history. Um, I also acted as an advisor for Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Congressman Beto O'Rourke in their 2020, their 2020 campaigns. And in addition to that, uh, I'm a delegate for the International Harmony Union, and I'm also a film director. I directed a film recently called Somebody's Daughter, uh, which is about the murdered and missing indigenous women tragedy that is impacting North America and our indigenous brothers and sisters uh, across the world uh, will be familiar in their own nations uh, with the devastation that this is causing because it is not an issue that is just confined um, to North America. No, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it is. And I think, you know, as we look at wildlife conservation from, from you know, our perspective from the podcast, you know, one of the things that, that does tend to get lost is uh, the native peoples in those regions. And so I think today, like, you know, your perspective on what is going on is going to be critical. And I think it's going to really be eye-opening for a lot of our listeners. So thank you. Thank you for, for joining us. And, you know, just to jump straight into it, the Trump administration has stripped protection from gray wolves. We we felt that was coming. We, we've seen some weakening really devastating weakening of the Endangered Species Act. So I guess specifically, if you can tell our listeners what he, what his administration has done and what it means for the wolves. Well, first of all, people need to recognize that in this past four years with the Trump administration, um, we're essentially dealing with flat earthers. You know, in the United States, we're losing 3,000 people a day to COVID-19 because of the Trump cult's war on science and the truth. And this is reflective of that attitude across the board. You know, we're talking about people who believe man was wandering around with the dinosaurs and that the earth has only been in existence for about 5,000 years. So I think most people will recognize that when you're trying to have any kind of intellectual debate informed by facts with cultists, that never really goes well. And, you know, the Trump administration, the Department of the Interior has essentially been a realtor um, for multinational energy corporations, for big ag, for livestock interests, and for timber operations. And so this is, this is antithetical, of course, you know, to the indigenous belief and to pretty much anybody who wants to have an inhabitable planet um, going forward. And so what you really have is a very extreme example of an aspect of the military industrial complex, which is really the fossil fuel industrial complex. And so that has been the objectives of the Trump administration all along. And I don't know whether you saw um, Secretary of the Interior Bernhard released a propaganda video in which they were touting Trump as being uh, the preserver of, and I quote, the awesome majesty of God's creation. 
which the absurdity of that matches the absurdity of what we have seen in the United States in terms of all these bogus claims about election fraud and so on and so forth. Because, you know, the, the video that Bernhard put out there trying to make out that Trump was this great conservationist, you know, the only thing it did was make Rudy Giuliani's version of his Borat experience seem to be credible. But, you know, this is the level that, you know, we have degenerated to in the past four years. And so this has been the most, I would wager, destructive administration in recent times for environmental issues and also for indigenous issues, which of course are hand in hand with environmental issues. It's, I, I agree. I think it's critical that, you know, we need to, especially in, in conservation, you know, we are animal focused, but we have to be focused on the indigenous people there too, you know, to, to, to make any of this work. So that, that's a great point. Bonnie, what did you uh, want to add? I was just going to say, just, you know, add to that in terms of, I agree as far as the, the, the unprecedented scale of attacks um, from this administration and, you know, specific to the Endangered Species Act and to individual species like the gray wolves. I mean, just in the last few weeks, we've seen several rules finalized that will remove protections, of course, from the gray wolf, as we're talking about tonight. But uh, just this week, we saw two rules finalized um, having to do with designation of critical habitat and stripping really important protections that the Endangered Species Act provides. Uh, we've seen another refusal to list the wolverine um, as a threatened species, despite the fact there are only about 300 left in the lower 48. And um, so it's just, you know, and of course, in these last days now, those, uh, those attacks are being finalized and rolled out the door um, before the Trump administration leaves office. So what, I guess what protections, if we can talk a little bit more about that, you, you were saying the, the critical habitat. So are they, there was habitat designated as critical that was protected and now that's been lifted. So now humans, we men and women can go in there and exploit. Well, as the Endangered Species Act requires that critical habitat the species need, you know, to recover be designated by the Fish and Wildlife Service. And so, what the rules, in particular, the rule that we just saw, um, you know, was finalized today, makes it much easier um, for economics to play a big role, um, and then IE politics in terms of designating critical habitat and whether you know this type of habitat that species really need to recover is actually protected, and so that's a huge attack on the Endangered Species Act, because of course you can't recover species if you don't have the habitat. And where specifically are gray wolves on that Endangered Species Act? I know we, we, we've talked about it geez, maybe last year where it was more of a state by state thing in the United States. Um, so mm -hmm. is there, is there an, the, the national policy and then the state policy? Because wolves were doing, were recovering. You know, we, we saw them in Cal when I was living in California, we saw wolves there for the first time in a long time. Uh, so I, I guess my question is, how is that, 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 I guess that national decision affecting them, I guess at the state level or, or in the different areas that they're at? Mm -hmm. Well, this rule that was just finalized in October 
strips protections from all wolves in the lower 48, uh, except the Mexican gray wolf in the Southwest. But um, it strips protect endangered species protections from all wolves in the lower 48, except where they were already uh, delisted, which is in the Northern Rockies. So Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. Um, so it strips protections from all the other populations. And from our perspective, wolves, they are not recovered because um, they exist in only a small portion of their former historic range. And so with this rule that was just finalized, it really puts um, in jeopardy wolves that were just starting to recover in places like the Pacific Northwest or just starting to get back to like California, as you mentioned. And then, you know, there's a lot of habitat where they should be and used to be, but aren't there anymore, such as in Colorado um, and the Southern Rockies. And so this rule puts all that in, in jeopardy, all of the decades of wolf recovery when they were just starting to recolonize. Yeah, they were starting to, right? Just starting to get to, to get back. And now right. those protections are being stripped. So I guess to switch to rain, rain, from your perspective, how does that not only affect the wolves, but how does that, you know, affect indigenous people or, or how does that affect native Americans? You know, it's it, the gray wolves are such an important part of our culture as Americans and, and native Americans. Well, to pick up really on what Bonnie was talking about, um, you know, the United States government, uh, probably this administration more so than any other in recent times, has essentially been a propaganda operation. Uh, they've just been pretty ham-fisted about the way that they've gone about it. But, you know, for people to really get a grasp of what's happening with the wolf, like Bonnie said, they presently exist on less than 10% of their historic range in the contiguous United States. And there's probably about 6,000 wolves surviving. And so for anybody to consider that that is a recovery under the tenets of the Endangered Species Act is frankly absurd because these beings, you know, that a lot of indigenous people consider to be sacred, they are suffering, you know, from fragmented and isolated fragmented and isolated regional packs. They are constrained by habitat loss from various housing and industrial developments. This is not going to stop. Um, it's the wolf is already confronting a multitude of threats from a lack of genetic diversity, which a lot of people don't talk about um, through to climate change. And so, you know, the Trump administration's decision to delist the wolf from the ESA you open at the wolf then up to mass trophy hunting and trapping with very, very little in the way of regulatory restraint. And had this administration and this, pre you know, I kind of pause when I say president um, being reelected, then you would have seen probably the annihilation of those wolves that, that remain. I issued a statement um, when this delisting announcement was made and the end of my statement was your vote on November the 3rd could be all that stands between the gray wolf and extinction. This is a moment to remember the ancient indigenous wisdom that speaks to how the fates of the wolf and humankind are inextricably linked. Vote. And thankfully people did vote. And I truly believe that that's what's going to save the wolf 
And that is what's going to see something that actually appears to be a recovery. Um, the Global Indigenous Council was the only indigenous organization to support Proposition 114 in Colorado, which was the ballot initiative to return the gray wolf to its traditional habitat um, in what is now the state of Colorado. And that was successful. So we're integrally um, involved in that issue presently. But I think what people need to realize that for indigenous nations, indigenous people, is that these issues that are called Endangered Species Act issues are actually Trojan horses for indigenous peoples and attacks on indigenous rights. You know, because an issue with these Endangered Species Act um, policies are for tribal nations at least, you know, major questions of sovereignty, religious and spiritual freedoms, our treaty rights, continued abrogation of the Federal Indian Trust responsibility through the Department of the Interior's consistent and flagrant ne neglect of traditional eco ecological knowledge in formulating these documents that masquerade as management plans. And these are foundational issues for indigenous nations and indigenous peoples that go beyond a single species, you know, and I should really point out that in many indigenous languages, you know, there is no term um, for animal or species. And these beings are considered relatives and that we are all related in the pattern and within the cycle of life. And you see what is happening and what has happened to the earth by those who do not appreciate that philosophy you know there is a reason why there is climate change today there is a reason why this planet may become uninhabitable within the lifetime of my daughter who right now is 17 years old and that is because of the arrogance and the ignorance um, that has risen with the military industrial complex and has risen also with the advance of patriarchy which is never ending because I really want people to understand that there exists a sickening parallel, not just hemisphere-wide, but worldwide, between the rape and destruction of the earth and the rape and murder of indigenous women and girls. You know, be that for gold and silver in the frontier era or for fossil fuels today, the pattern is the same and the victims remain unchanged. You know, our present is laced with that historical trauma. And this attitude extends to our relatives that I just mentioned, the wolf, the grizzly bear, the wolverine, others. You know, for those who live near the oceans, the whale, the shark, you know, the different species of whales and shark. You know, and all of those, like ourselves, as human beings, are shapes of and shaped by the earth. These beings like ourselves are born of the earth. And these beings that are born of the earth and are, that are shapes of the earth are feminine in matter. They are feminine in nature. So this continual decimation of them is yet another articulation of male dominance 
end up desecrating the feminine. And if we do not realize that, and we do not appreciate that, then the path and the pattern that has been established will continue. And we can talk about the, the Paris Climate Accord, and we can talk about mitigating strategies for climate change, but we will not get to the root of the issue. And if you want to address the issue, you have to get to the foundation of the issue. And that right there is the foundation of the issue. Well, it's like listening to you just, yeah. And it's, you know, in the modern world, quote unquote, people think this isn't playing out as far as indigenous people. And as you're talking, not only in, in, in the United States, but, you know, when you have a global audience, I'm thinking of down in South America, you know, Central America, down in Indonesia, uh, those parts of the world where, you know, the, the native habitat is just being destroyed, stripped, you know, to be exploited. So this is just, just to quickly rain to follow up on that thought. This is a pattern we're seeing around the globe, correct? I mean, even Africa, I mean, and, and still going on in Europe and in part, you know, a lot of parts of Asia. So, you know, I, I know we're talking about gray wolves today, but this is something you're still seeing around the planet, correct? Correct. I mean, it's, it is. It's worldwide where this is occurring because wherever there is um, financial motivation, that is what drives these decisions at a government level, uh, both nationally and also locally. And, you know, I think that we also need to have a recognition that whether it's in the United States or, you know, whether it's in South America someplace, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil is, you know, a classic example of that, or you travel to the continent of Africa, you know, pretty much wherever you go. Um, you know, we need to have an honest conversation about this because indigenous people and people of color generally have been entirely disenfranchised from any conversations about conservation or environmentalism, you know, and I want to emphasize that the terms, you know, conservation and environmentalism are very recent to the lexicon of the English language. And so given that they're recent to that lexicon, that's also a fairly recent uh, innovation in terms of thought as well but for indigenous people you know there wasn't a term for it because it was a way of life you know this was how you lived um and you didn't need somebody to tell you that was how you lived you didn't need somebody to explain to you you know that the earth was your mother and that the earth was going to sustain you and that you had to live in balance with all things i mean you know just just something simple in terms of language you know, how many, how many times do you hear somebody in conversations say, oh, I was battling the weather? You know, you were battling the weather? I mean, just, you know, take a pause and think about that. <laughs> um, because pretty much everything that you hear in respect to the natural world, you know, the terms and the metaphors that are used to describe the natural world, they're all adversarial. You know, these are all patriarchal terms that are militaristic in origin. And people don't realize that. And, you know, that is significant indoctrination 
that you are using these terms because it instantly speaks to your separation from the earth, from the planet, from the natural environment, quote unquote. I mean, you know, I'm not quite sure what the unnatural environment is other than when I'm in the middle of a city. But nonetheless, you understand the point that I'm making. And I think we need, you know, we need to look at certainly uh, in the United States, you know, there, there is a racial reckoning taking place in this country, whether people, you know, want to acknowledge it or not, and whether it's just been on their TV screens, you know, for a couple of months or not. And we need to recognize, you know, what white supremacy is and that white supremacy in so-called conservation and environmentalism does exist. You know, pretty much anything in this society that has been established and melded into a system as fault lines of systemic racism. And, you know, so far as conservation goes in the United States, those fault lines were definitively established by individuals like Teddy Roosevelt, Madison Grant, George Bird Grinnell, all of these patriarchs of the Boone and Crockett Club and, you know, the supposed patriarchs of American conservation, which, you know, we can talk about those individuals later. But, you know, I, I think when I go out personally, and I know Bonnie spends a lot of time in the backcountry too, you know, we have, a, we have a different concept of what the land is. But in that patriarchal contrived wilderness, that they created, you know, these individuals inserted themselves as natives, you know, of the soil, of the land, you know, but they proved nothing beyond the reaffirmation of delusion as the quintessential trait of America's psychosis, you know, and that is a reality, you know, in many ways, the, the quote unquote wilderness that Teddy Roosevelt created and the people bought into, you know, remains symbolic of segregation. You know, that when you go to a trailhead that doesn't end a national park, that doesn't have to be a quote, you know, no coloreds or no dogs or Indians sign for that message to be clear. Because on these trails that crisscross tribal lands, indigenous lands that are now masked as national parks and national forests, you know, what percentage of that North Face uniformed army of backpackers, hikers, climbers, and nature photographers of people of color. And I ask you that question earnestly and sincerely, you know, what percentage? You know, the countenance of God that John Muir spoke of being reflected in the mountains was distinctly white for Muir and the Sierra Club. You know, I give him a lot of credit uh, for recognizing that. So in reality, people of color have been systematically disenfranchised from the land and hence the conversation. And so, you know, the absurdity of white supremacy is once again exposed when you consider that the only people alive in the United States who carry any semblance in their DNA of what the high watermark of the biomass was on this continent are indigenous people. Post-contact, you know, look around you now to see the consequences, the devastation, the rivers that have run dry, the burning sky. You know, right now, as we're having this conversation, just think about how the coronavirus pandemic began. 
the total abandonment of any notion of respect or balance for these beings of the natural world that we share this planet with. And you can see the consequences. Yeah, it seems like nature nature is definitely fighting back. And, you know, as you're talking, it, it, it's bringing up, a, you know, it's very impactful. And from a conservation standpoint, is it more, and, and maybe Bonnie, you can jump in too at some point, in historically a conservation strategy was to go put fences up, drive, you know, indigenous people out and say, okay, this is conservation land. The animals need it. You don't get out. And, you know, versus strategies that, that we've researched the last few years is really working with the indigenous people there, you know, like in Nepal has really great uh, programs going, helping tigers and snow leopards and elephants and other, other species there in that part of the world. Uh, we're seeing it in Africa. We just talked about a few studies. I think it was in Gabon where, you know, the, the peoples there are invested in the land. And so the governments and agencies are working with them rather than putting these fences up. Is that more of what you, you see going on even in the United States? Or is it, is it another issue that we're not aware of, of this, this exploitation? And, and you're right, system, systemic racism from the 18, you know, centuries, centuries. I, I would say that as Rain is talking about, and, and this is just, this is innate with indigenous peoples, but that all of us need to realize that we are all connected and we are all part of this one ecosystem, this one earth. And, um, you know, we ignore that really at our own peril. And as we were talking about, you know, a direct result of that is the pandemic. And I don't think this will be the last one. You know, if we continue, it's not the first and won't be the last if we continue on this kind of path where we're not respecting the rest of life and other species. And I think um, it's really interesting that, you know, we are seeing the rights of nature movement and that, you know, really being primarily led by indigenous people. And maybe Rain, you can speak to that a little bit more, but, um, you know, I think we're gonna see that growing more and more as people realize, and, you know, now I think people are starting to wake up that we are in the midst of this mass extinction. And this is the first one that is caused directly by humans. And so hopefully that will give rise to more of this, you know, realizing that we are so connected and we can't just see ourselves as separate from all the, all other life and all other species. I mean, this is, this is the decade, like scientists, you know, around the globe agree, this is the deciding decade, the future of our planet and our species. And it's interesting that we're having this discussion today because I've, I've always asked a lot of my guests, you know, do we have a moral imperative to protect the earth, the planet, and more and more are saying yes, because it's going to protect us as a species. You know, not only do we have, you know, we have to protect, you know, the, the gray wolves and the wolverine and the other species, but in turn, we're protecting ourselves. And it brings back to, we had a, a World Wildlife uh, Foundation uh, scientist and or fund and scientist uh, WWF scientist Sunarto and he he said and we say this often save a tiger save yourself 
if you can save one animal, you'll in turn save yourself. So, so Rainer, you, you know, as this discussion's evolving, you know, and, and we're talking about gray wolves, but just the, the broader issues, you know, this connection to nature, things like that. Is it, uh, is it changing out there? Is conservation changing as far as, you know, officials and trying to get indigenous people, you know, subscribe to this? I mean, I, I you know, it's kind of a loss of words sometimes dealing with tackling that issue. You know, how do we engage, you know, uh, not only Native Americans who've always taken care of the planet and, and, and their, their homes, but, you know, is there a change in the air that you can see from your perspective? I think that there is a greater awareness because as you articulated there, um, people start to see that there are consequences for them. And so on the one hand, while I think it's somewhat of a sad commentary that it requires some kind of selfish motivation to get involved with trying to um, save the planet and also to alleviate terrible, terrible socioeconomic conditions that indigenous people through generations of colonization have been forced to exist in. Um, you know, we, we take what we can get. And so that people are starting to be engaged in this means that there is a possibility of opening up a discussion which hopefully goes further, but that it, and, and when I say goes further, it doesn't just remain words. It translates into deeds and actions. And so there is some, some hope upon their horizon in respect to that. Um, you know, Bonnie mentioned the indigenous rights of nature and my aunt, Casey Camp Haranek, is really the leader of that movement, certainly in the United States, and I would wager um, in North America. And this is absolutely critical because the indigenous rights of nature are tenets and values that are going to encourage people to be engaged to understand that they are not separate from, they are not apart from, they are a part of the cycle of life. They are a part of the earth and that they themselves as a microcosm are integral to the balance of all things. And the Wolf Treaty um, that we created and, you know, we did so with support from our friends at Sierra Club and Earth Justice. Um, the, the Wolf Treaty is the first treaty, the first document that has articles um, in respect to the indigenous rights of nature within it. And this treaty has been signed by tribal nations from Connecticut to California. And many of these nations, you know, do not have the wolf upon their lands, but they have a historic and sacred cultural relationship with the wolf that is within their ancestral memory. And so that's why people were motivated 
um, to sign that treaty. And people have recognized the wolf as being symbolic of the struggle for life, the struggle for the continuation of life and the choice that we have. And the choice that we have is that, you know, we can keep repeating the vicious cycle as it exists now. And, you know, we're going to end up living in a world that looks like something Cormac McCarthy imagined in the road. Um, Or we can actually try and do something about it. But to try and do something about it requires that we recognize our commonality as opposed to our differences. That we understand that it's not a cliche to say that we have more in common than more that divides us and more that separates us. Because, you know, any indigenous person, a non-indigenous person will ask them about their heritage. And, you know, that's perfectly acceptable and perfectly reasonable. And when indigenous people are interacting with one another, you know, you're generally asking who somebody's family is, you know, because you're curious as to whether or not you're related. Well, why are you curious as to whether or not you're related? Think about that because we have a belief that we are all related and we're interested, you know, we're interested with being family with one another and, you know, indigenous people, you know, don't recognize, well, so this is my great, 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 you know, grandfather or grandmother or whatever it is. Oh, this is my fifth cousin. No, that's your relative. That's your family right there. And, if we can recognize that and we can recognize, you know, that what defines us, you know, it's, it's in our blood, it's in our hearts. You know, Cheyenne people have a saying that, you know, it was Chief Yellow Wolf said that, you know, your heart is your first teacher. And there is a concept that the thought process goes from the heart to the brain as opposed to the brain to the heart and if we can reconnect from the heart to the brain and the brain to the heart you know whilst in some respects that's the longest journey that anybody will ever take it's also the most critical journey that anybody will ever undertake and this is where we are now this is where we are you know let's not get distracted let's not diffuse the focus Let's understand that everybody is actually indigenous because everybody is indigenous to the planet. So why don't we start there and then try and come together? It's the only home we have. It's true. It's deep. I mean, it's deep philosophical and it's, it's, it's just, you know, and, and bringing this back to like the, the gray wolves, but it, it, we are, we are one. And that's the thing. And, and we're in the midst, you know, we're in the middle of this pandemic or hopefully near, near in the end, who knows when this is going to end recording this in, at the end of 2020. But, you know, this year has in some respects changed a lot of people's perspectives, hopefully given them a respect, healthy respect for nature. But you're right. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter where you live on this planet. You depend on it to, to live, breathe your future generations, you know, all of that. So why aren't we protecting it? And just to kind of, I guess, bring it back to gray wolves and then we can kind of tie in how like 
you know, the, in the United States, we, we have a, you know, president elect Biden coming in and his philosophy and how this might change, but where's the fight right now? Because in the past we've had, we actually had, um, so we had a lawyer on for the center for biological diversity talking about this copper mine down in, uh, I think it was Arizona trying to protect, uh, the lone male Jaguar that, that roams the United States. And, you know, where are we in the legal fight with wolves? I mean, is it, is it a done deal with, with, with Trump, you know, done and dusted or are we able Sierra club and, and others able to uh, generate a, a legal fight to stop this or reverse this from happening? Mm-hmm. We are in court right now um, on the gray wolf delisting to, to overturn that because again, um, gray wolves are not recovered and they need endangered species protections until they are recovered and that they're occupying a much greater um, percentage of their historic habitat. Okay. So that those, those, the, the changes, I guess my question is, are they being implemented or it just is, and I want to explain this to the audience too. Sure. It's great. Oh yeah. You can file, you can go to court and, Mm -hmm. and gum, gum up the works going to court. Mm -hmm. But people mm-hmm. have to understand lawyers, people do understand. I think lawyers are extremely expensive. It's very time consuming. So when I, when something like the Sierra Club has to pour a lot of resources into a legal fight like this, it takes away from education campaigns, protecting certain critical habitats, things like that. So I, I would think from your perspective, the legal fights are a headache and it's not something the Sierra Club, I mean, you do, right? But it's you want to put those resources elsewhere. Yeah, and I think, um, yes, we would rather do that than in litigation, but when we need to, we will (laughs) use that vehicle as well. Um, But certainly, yeah, working with people on the ground, um, coexistence measures with wolves, those kinds of programs um, to help people understand um, more about the species and that they are not the huge threat that um, some People make them out to be, um, but th- that kind of uh, education and working with people is really important, and that's where we we like to use our resources um, more, you know, than in litigation to do those kinds of things. I um, mean, to get people to weigh in with their state agencies that manage wildlife and uh, change those plans where they're really. Uh, focused against wolves, you know, for example, in Utah, you know, part of their state plan there is that any wolf that enters the state will be shot. So things like that, you know, to really try and change the culture of those state management agencies is really important as well for when wolves are on the ground there. Or for instance, um, with the initiative that Rain was talking about in Colorado, the voter, voter initiative to reintroduce wolves there. So how they're managed then is going to be really important. Right. And that's a place where people can really weigh in, you know, with their state agencies. So you say with, with Utah, if, if a wolf goes into Utah, it can be shot. If these protections were in place with the Endangered Species Act, that could not take place, right? But the, the right, federal, right, right. Got it. But now, and that's one of the reasons why we are in litigation, you know, again, they're not recovered, but also because a lot of the state plans are really inadequate or they're really hostile mm-hmm. toward wolves. And um, so those state plans go into effect. 
you know, if the federal protections aren't there. And then Rain, do you, are you involved in these legal fights from a conservation perspective or protecting uh, indigenous rights? Uh, yeah, we are. I mean, I was pretty significantly involved in the fight to return the Yellowstone, so-called Yellowstone grizzly bear to Endangered Species Act protections in the lawsuit that was initially known as Crow Tribe at Alvi Zinke. And myself and my uncle, Don Shoulderblade, who's their Cheyenne Sundance priest, and he's the one who gave me the name, Naho Hokios, the bear stands last. Um, he and I began galvanizing tribal support um, against the delisting of the grizzly bear because, you know, traditionally the grizzly bear, for example, is a physical embodiment of the spirit of our grandmother earth. And the grizzly bear is the first medicine person. And the grizzly bear brought many curing and healing ways um, to indigenous peoples. So without going into great detail, um, the grizzly bear is integral to a lot of indigenous cultures. One of my Zuni brothers, who's a member of the Zuni religious fraternity uh, in New Mexico, you know, the, the grizzly bear is a deity for the Zuni people. And as I once said in a debate, if you consider the grizzly bear to be a deity and you're going to allow trophy hunting, then you try and explain to me how it is not an infringement of your religious liberty that somebody can come along and shoot God. Well, of course, that created a certain amount of controversy, mm -hmm. but it happens to be a pertinent point in this argument. So a lot of times with indigenous peoples and indigenous nations, it's not, it's not just the quote unquote conservation aspect. There is a law, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, which is a law and People have said, well, this is, a, this is a toothless law. Well, you know, my argument when we went into Crow Tribe at Alvi Zinke was it's about time we gave it some teeth then. Because the religious liberty, spiritual liberty of indigenous peoples um, needs to be recognized and it needs to be respected. You know, if uh, Hobby Lobby, for example, can object to the Affordable Care Act because they believe passing out or having contraception available to their employees is an infringement upon their civil liberty, well, then I would argue that our objections are somewhat stronger than theirs. So, you know, let's place it into that context. Um, so we will certainly be engaged if there is a legal fight um, progressing over the gray wolf. Now, you know, we had news today that uh, my friend, Congresswoman Deb Holland, has been nominated by President-elect Biden to be Secretary of the Interior. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, I'm not one for making too many predictions, uh, but I would be surprised if this delisting rule for the gray wolf 
introduced by Secretary Bernhard stands mm-hmm. in a Biden administration when Deb Harland is Secretary of the Interior. You know, and let's let's understand where we have been. Because Secretary Bernhardt and Secretary Zinke before him are probably the worst secretaries of the interior that the United States has had since Jim Watt in the Reagan administration. And for those who don't remember, Jim Watt, and, you know, I should add here, I was just a young boy at the time that he was secretary of the interior. But nonetheless, I remember some of the ridiculous things that he said. And, you know, Watt didn't care about endangered species because he believed, you know, the apocalypse and the second coming was nigh. And so therefore, why would you be bothered? Now, in Bernhardt, you have an extractive industry shill. He is a veteran fossil fuel lobbyist. And in Zinke, you had a trophy hunting grifter who perjured himself before Congress over the delisting of the grizzly bear. Now, Gail Norton in the Bush administration, she wasn't a whole lot better than that. Um, I wasn't a fan of Ken Salazar when President Obama uh, nominated him, and I wouldn't really call Sally Jewell terribly progressive, but she was better than the rest of those that I just mentioned. And Deb Holland um, has the potential to be one of the great secretaries of interior in American history. And so it's a very proud day for indigenous people that President-elect Biden has nominated her and I have great faith in her. I've had the honor to work with her and had many discussions about very, very significant issues. And so we were talking about hope earlier. And so I would say to people that there is hope there. Um, And so I, you know, I, I would not necessarily feel that we're going to have to engage in a lot of litigation over the wolf, uh, over the delisting of the wolf. Um, Always be prepared, uh, I would say. You know, let's let's retain, you know, our guard and let's keep our strategies close. And if we have to initiate them, um, then we will. But I think we can have I think we can have more confidence today than we had yesterday. No, that's that's good news actually, and it was in, interesting when we initiated discussions about these interviews. It was before the election, so things have obviously changed a little bit. But like you said, we we've always got to be on guard because in the United States, at least, you know, there's elections every four years, so these policies can flip flop, which is completely unfair to animals and indigenous people. You know, as 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 administrations change. Just really quick before we get, we, we, we always love the hope too. That's what we need. We need hope. We, you know, people don't want to just hear all these sad stories about, because they just shut off. So there is hope out there. But what has happened the last four years to the Endangered Species Act? What protections have been stripped that maybe we don't know about that the Sierra Club's fighting? I mean, wolves are always in the paper or, or something charismatic like a grizzly bear. But what about some other things that might have happened that people aren't aware of that we should be aware of so we can encourage the Biden administration or, or our elected officials to change? Well, I think certainly the the rules that we were talking about earlier in terms of the critical habitat designation and just in general, 
attacks on the ESA over the last four years that have prioritized politics over science. We've seen quite a lot of attacks in that regard. And, um, you know, hopefully with some of these that we're just seeing now, especially, you know, the incoming administration can roll back the rollback, so to speak. Um, but there's a lot to do, you know, for the for the Biden administration in terms of trying to, you know, repair all the damage, um, you know, Endangered Species Act attacks are in a very important one. It's what we're talking about tonight, but there's a whole host of other ones, you know, as Rain was referring to earlier. And so there, you know, there's a long list um, for sure, but uh, we definitely have some hope and um, hopefully, uh, with the new Secretary of Interior and the first Native American in the cabinet position, that that's a paradigm shift. Yeah. Um, and um, so I have a lot of hope, you know, for that, and that people will really see, you know, again that this is the only home we have. We are all connected, and that species like grizzly bears and and wolves and they have a right to exist on the planet in and of themselves. You know, really, whether it benefits us or not, of course, it does benefit us. But um, I think, you know, that's part of what the Rights of Nature movement is all about. No, it's, it's definitely something we we definitely would love to talk about more in the future. Maybe have you back or, you know, kind of focus more on that. What are the rights of nature and and how do we educate the masses on that and, you know, subscribe to that that, that philosophy? But my question with the Endangered Species Act maybe you can answer this from, from either of your perspectives. Mm -hmm. This was pushed by Nixon. I mean, this was a, you know, a, a conservative Republican administration. It was a bipartisan bill passed in the 1970s. When did it become so political? And now it's like a right versus left issue in the United States or elsewhere in the world. Like, like we talked about down in Brazil, you know, where, Oh, you know, making money trumps, the planet. You know, where was that switch? Where was that paradigm? Was it the 1980s? Was it, <laughs> when did that happen? Well, I think when it came to the establishment of the Endangered Species Act, it was really the exception, not the rule. Because when you're talking about the United States, if you look at the catastrophic devastation that was wrought across the continent with manifest destiny, then you know what you have seen is really just um, the same pattern repeated. And so I think that there was an inevitability to the Endangered Species Act essentially becoming um, so politicized that it would become a quote-unquote right-left issue. And as, as it always was in the establishment of the United States and in the various incarnations that have been reimagined of the United States, you know, there is one thing which is consistent, and that is people's desire for economic status. And so that means that your fulcrum is the dollar. And that fulcrum has been 
given motivation by the extractive industries. And there's no question about that. And this is replicated the world over. So for example, in October of 2018, um, the Global Indigenous Council, the Rocky Mountain Tribal Leaders Council and the Great Plains Tribal Chairman's Association was invited by Senator Copper to submit testimony um, to the Environment, Environmental and Public Works Commission, which deals with Endangered Species Act issues. Well, the chairman of the EPW committee is um, Senator John Barrasso from Wyoming. Now, Senator Barrasso um, is, how shall we put it, um, extremely accommodating to extractive industry, particularly Anadarko Petroleum and Gas. Now, Anadarko Petroleum and Gas is, and I quote, one of the largest landowners and leaseholders in the state of Wyoming. Well, there's a reason why, you know, sage grass didn't receive ESA protections. There's a reason why they were so hell-bent on removing Endangered Species Act protections from the grizzly bear. Similarly with the wolf, there's a reason why they don't want to give Endangered Species Act protections to the wolverine. And that right there is your reason. And if you take Barrasso as a test case, his former campaign manager is now the government relations manager at Anadarko Petroleum. And Anadarko Petroleum is simply one of his biggest financial contributors, you know, to various political action committees. Um, that he has. And it's not a surprise that Anadarko was the first company to write a letter of support to Barrasso for his proposed amendments to the Endangered Species Act, which was basically gutting the Endangered Species Act. And so, you know, let's not be naive about it. This is, this is the reason why. You know, th there is a reason why when it comes to the gray wolf, for example, that you are constantly hearing these stories about livestock conflict. And so it has become the fact that quote unquote conservatives, and I don't even know what a conservative is anymore because basically in the United States, we presently have two political parties and one party is dedicated to the survival of democracy. The other party has submitted to the notion of autocracy. And so we're in a situation now where you see those from the Republican side of the aisle, and I don't even know that it's an aisle anymore. Um, you know, this is a chasm. And when they're talking about the wolf, they're talking points, and it doesn't matter if it's at the federal, state, or local level, they are always going to come down to livestock conflicts. This is what you're going to hear about, because that's what's going to motivate people in Wyoming and Idaho and, you know, Montana and even Utah and, you know, so on and so forth in the Western states. But, you know, there's got to there's be a recognition that, a lot of this is, um, you know, alternative facts. And I really think it's, an ab it's absolutely abysmal that we are presently 
living in a time where this term alternative fact is either acceptable, you know, there's either truth or there's lies. It's either a fact or it's bullshit. And so, you know, let's call it for what it is there. Now, in respect to livestock, just to quote a few points. In 2019, in the entire state of Wyoming, there was only 70 head of livestock that were cataloged as being lost to wolves. Now, you would think the way that it's spoken of, that it was thousands. Mm -hmm. On the Wind River Indian Reservation, for example, there was only one calf, one calf that was lost to a supposed conflict with wolves. In the Rocky Mountain region, peer-reviewed studies, you know, and, and I know the term peer review, I would have to explain it to Donald Trump and his acolytes, but hopefully most of the people listening to this will understand what that is. Um, peer review studies have confirmed that 60% of sheep lost in livestock conflicts in the Rocky Mountains are taken by coyotes. Compared to approximately 4% that are lost to wolves. You know, but what's the difference here? It's that Euro-American dogma. You know, the coyote doesn't carry that medieval stigma that the wolf does, you know, about the European folktale mythology that was transposed to religious dogma and was then eventually carried to the frontier where wolves in the so-called new world, you know, were still seen as evil incarnate from the old world. That's still something that is being propagated today. You know, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, which Bonnie well knows, is not exactly known for being predator friendly, concedes that there is a direct correlation between when wolf livestock conflicts occur and seasons when open range grazing on public lands begins. So, you know, there is an easy answer to that. And that is to quit turning wilderness into cattle pasture. Because then that's going to reduce whatever conflicts that there actually are. You know, we're talking about saving the planet. We're talking about climate change, for example. But, you know, I would suspect that when most people look at cattle, they probably don't recognize that domestic livestock make up the largest proportion of the 14.5% of all greenhouse gas emissions related to human activity. And that's just a fact. It's not just dirty fuels and extractive industry that's eviscerating the ozone layer and, you know, drawing those flames higher. You know, what some still today term as wilderness, but, you know, most indigenous people call home, that was never intended to be cattle pasture. And again, it speaks to a lack of balance. It speaks to the fact that our biomass today is on life support. And it is necessary, as I alluded to earlier, for people to come together and to begin a healing process. And returning the balance to these lands includes returning the wolf to these lands. You know, but let's try and go back to a place where we're having conversations that are based upon facts because that way we may be able to make some progress. 
That's it's yeah, that's where we got to base everything. And that's just like, you know, you see the COVID response around the world differ by certain countries and, you know, trust in science and, and, and things like that. And, and just basic facts. It, well, it, well, I was just going to see that in particular over the last four years has really just been devastating in terms of the denial of science, the attacks on science. And one of the things that really struck me, um, you know, after the election was when um, Vice President-elect Harris said, we're going to return to science. <laughs> and I was like, here, here, yes. <laughs> because it is so critical, you know, for all these issues that we're talking about um, to actually, you know, agree on a set of facts and um, make decisions based on that. No, absolutely. I mean, that's, it, they all should be, you know, fact-based. Now, I just really quick, I did look it up too. Uh, Rain said there were 70 cows lost in 2017, I believe, in Wyoming out of 1.27 million. So you're talking- That's 2019. 2019. That was, okay. Yeah. That is minuscule, minuscule. That is, that is it's ridiculous that uh, wolves are demonized for that. Well, and if you look at the numbers, you know, in terms of the other causes of death, you know, oh. livestock, I mean, number one is you know, respiratory diseases. Disease, yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's that um, the industry sees that there are certain things that they can tr control. There's a lot that's out of their control, but you know, they can, with the aid of some government agencies, you know, control predators. And so unfortunately, we see a lot of native carnivores being killed on public lands as a result of, of grazing. Well, we're, we're over an hour, so we'll try to wrap this up. There is good news, though, it sounds like, you know, it, it, it's with this new administration coming in and, you know, with, with some changes, you know, just really quick, if you want to look, you know, tell our listeners how we can help both of you in your efforts. And would you like to come back in maybe a few months and we can, we can touch on this and maybe talk more on the rights of nature, because that's fascinating. And I'm sure our listeners would love to, to have that. And I know Angie would love to sit in on that too. So mm -hmm. I want to pencil that in when I can, but yeah, if, if you can just tell our listeners, how we can help not just the Sierra Club, but also the, the Global Indigenous Council. It's fascinating topics that we need to explore more because they're all so tied together. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we saw um, are, are seeing in this pandemic, you know, how important nature is to people in terms of being able to restore our spirits and just to be out and to see other species and how important that is to our, our mental and physical health. And so I would ask people to really get involved in protecting public lands and the species that really depend on those public lands. And now there's a resolution that was introduced by Senator Udall in Congress to protect 30% of our remaining lands and waters in the U.S. Um, by 2030. And so I think that's a step 
it's definitely, you know, we need to go farther than that, but that's an important step. And um, so that's something that people can help with in their own backyard or federal public lands, but really just to protect these lands that we all depend upon and that all these other species depend upon also. Mm-hmm. And then Rain, how can we help you in your efforts? Um, pretty simple answer, think. Because <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. You know, it's it's a sad fact that too many people um, are beguiled by social media and are prepared to believe what it is that they read on there. And you know, propaganda is extremely damaging, but it's also extremely effective in the destruction of societies. And we've had four years here of pretty relentless propaganda. You know, something that starts out as a lie is still a lie even after you've repeated it 5,000 times. And so I would just simply ask people to recognize one of the greatest gifts that the creator gave us, which is our intelligence. And so we need to start using it. As I said earlier, we need to recognize all of the things that that uniters, as opposed to those few things that tend to divide us. And so far as the work of the Global Indigenous Council is concerned, people can visit our website at globalindigenouscouncil.com and get involved in a lot of the issues that we are working on. And one of the principal issues that we're engaged with is the murdered and missing indigenous women and girls crisis, which is not just affecting the United States and Canada, um, but worldwide. If people have an opportunity, they could go to uh, somebody's daughter-mmiw.com and find out information about the somebody's daughter film, um, because it's going to take all of us. And we cannot go on living in a way that essentially leaves us in various silos that are all separated from one another. Um, we need to break down those barriers and begin dialogue and begin meaningful communication. And, you know, I, I would just say to people, if, you, if you're engaged on social media a lot of the time, I would ask you, you know, when, when you're leaving a comment for somebody on somebody's post or, you know, something that somebody said, would you speak to them in person the way that you respond to them through a keyboard? Because what this speaks to is the diminishment of compassion in society. And we need to return to that compassion And part of returning to that compassion is respect. It's having respect for one another. And if you can have respect for one another, then that respect will extend out to all of these other beings with whom we share this earth with in the circle of life. And it will extend to the earth itself. So I hope next time we can 
talk about you know some foundational issues when it comes to uh, wildlife management because I think very few people know where the concept of wildlife management certainly in the United States came from and they do need to know that um, in order that we can actually make some progress. That please, please, this was fascinating. And, and I think it's something we, you know, uh, you know, to our listenership needs to hear, you know, we need to hear, we, we talk about conservation being complex and it, it is a very complex issue and it's not just the animals. It's all these other political indigenous rights, his, history of racism, all of this. So fascinating. We got to do a follow-up on this. Um, but, but thank you so much, Bonnie Rice, uh, Senior Representative from the Sierra Club, our, our Wild America. And then Rain Bear Stands Last, the Executive Director for the Global Indigenous Council. Thank you both. This was fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Take care.